0: Extraordinary times and I just want to begin by saying I hope this finds you well, you know, as well as can be in whatever circumstances you find yourself and the intro to this podcast is, is a bit longer than normal because I want to share three thoughts about the extraordinary events unfolding around the world. So if you want to skip straight to the conversation with David White, that's about um, six minutes in. Today's podcast, I think, is very pertinent to what's unfolding in the world. It's with David White, and we recorded it a couple of weeks ago before the coronavirus um, was taking root in Europe, where I'm based, and in America, where he's based. But nevertheless, I think it's a very relevant conversation. And whilst there is undoubtedly going to be countless tragedies unfolding, I do believe there are opportunities that lie within what's happening to us collectively. Um, I've noticed in myself that there's a break in the usual everyday, you could even say habituated way that I live. You know, like literally large parts of the globe right now are on lockdown. We are being forced to stop. Many of the activities, the meetings, the, the, the time that I've been spending has been forced to stop. And for sure, I've been feeling fear, fear in the uncertainty of where this will head, fear for my family, for my my parents. And in that stopping, it's having me, there is space, there is space to attune to deeper questions of what is truly important to me, what's essential and that's what our conversation is about today my conversation with david white we're going to be talking about the conversational nature of reality and we're going to be talking about when the conversation we're in has come to an end and you know that's what's happening right now like whether whether things are going to resume again in the usual way in a, in a in a few weeks a few months we don't know but the conversation we've been in collectively has stopped. There is a break. And therefore, we are plunged into a relationship with the unknown, which can be scary. But it's also the place where we can make contact with the new conversation, a new courageous conversation that wants to emerge. And that's the opportunity I feel in these times because of the enormity of what's taking place. Collectively, we may be, Um, forced into that relationship with the unknown in a way that new conversations begin to emerge. And as coaches, many of our clients come into coaching because the conversation that they've been in has come to an end. It's run its course. it's, It's stale. The life has drained out of it. And talk about the conversational nature of reality if I, as I go into the supermarket and I see the vegetable section empty and I see the people walking around with a look of bemusement on their face and I feel what it does to me. that, that is um, you know I part of me wants to withdraw and, and look at this through my rational lens you know but there's an invitation to plunge into p- full participation with what's unfolding. These are soul-making times. So can we feel this crucible, the intensity of the of the pressure and what that evokes in us? And that question, who do I choose to be in response, is incredibly powerful. So what do I want to say? Well, I just want to come back to our appreciation of you as a, as a global community of coaches that can support people in these times to, to begin to find center again, to move out of the potential reactivity, to find center, to find connection with that deeper conversation that wants to emerge a few words about David White, if you don't know who he is. Well, first of all, let me say he is a transformational speaker. Uh, he, le- he recently led a session in one of our programs and um, the, 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 the silence in the air was palpable. People were in tears at the end of the session. Um, he is um, a poet and um, the author of nine books of poetry and four books of prose holds a degree in marine zoology, has some amazing stories about his trips to the Galapagos Islands. And reading his biography here, his life as a poet has created a readership and listenership in three normally mutually exclusive areas, the literate world of readings that most poets inhabit, the psychological and theological worlds of philosophical inquiry, and the world of vocation, work, and organizational leadership. So, um, yeah, Um, I really urge you to check out David White's work, and I um, really hope you enjoy this conversation. May May it be a friend in these times. And I wish you Godspeed in the work that you're doing. And without further ado, here is David White. So, David, it's uh, wonderful to be with you today. Um, I've just enjoyed our pre-conversation exchange very much. We're both from the north of England, so maybe we'll touch back into that um, uh, as we speak. But um, I'd love to, of course, the, this um, this body of work you brought into the world around the conversational nature of reality. I think is fundamentally crucial for our times. Like, um, um, perhaps it all, all, always was. Like, but. Um, I'm sure it's something about these times where uh, this way of being in the world seems so pertinent. And um, I'm going to do a, a, a poor interview thing. I'm going to I'm going to pose two questions and and see which one you go for first, and maybe you end up answering both. But I um, and we'll talk about what the conversational nature of reality is. But what do you feel? These are the two questions. What do you feel is the conversation? Um, that we need to be stopping in order to to you know open to the the new conversation that wants to find us as a species on the planet right now. So that's that's the, the first question, and the yeah. second one I'm curious is like how that is for you right now. You know, like yes. are you, in your journey, are you feeling like I'm I'm uh, there's a conversation that's wanting to end in order to allow something to to come in?
1: Yes. Well, I think uh, that um, one of the conversations we're stopping is one that our great great, uh, theological and religious and artistic and contemplative traditions have been asking us to stop from the beginning of human consciousness, and that's, Placing your identity in the peripheral strategic mind, which is always um, comparing, always competitive, and always naming things too early. And uh, there's a reason for uh, that, that competition and for that uh, sense of being besieged, and that's evolution and survival. But it's not, it's not a part of the mind that can grant you any happiness nor allow you to be generous uh, and give others uh, the same benefit of the doubt that you wish for yourself. And uh, so one of the things that's occurring is the, the magnification of how troubled this mind is through its reflection through Instagram and the Internet and Facebook that uh, all, of these, all of these technologies can be absolutely marvellous. Uh, you know, I, I think Coleridge, uh, living in the 18th century, would have given his eye teeth for a laptop and for Facebook. He used to kill himself every, every month trying to get a, uh, or every three months trying to get out an issue of his pamphlet called The Watchman, hmm. and the amount of work and effort it took to get to just a small cir- circulation of people was enormous so uh, we're able to get our work out in this in this time but also there's so much distraction there's so much uh of our darker side which is magnified by uh by being in a crowd of voices where we feel a competitive part of that crowd um so the invitation is to is to go through uh, this timeless uh, process of radical simplification and to uh, to find a, a much simpler way of living amidst all of the temptations and technologies and peripheries of existence that are proliferating right now. So I do think that uh, many of the things we're seeing is the is the hollowing out of what were previously hardened frontiers between inheritances of belief. Um, and there's an understanding, I think, amongst youth most especially. Now, the most tedious thing you can find out about another person is what they believe, yeah. that, uh, these That beliefs that are held mostly by this strategic competitive mind, you know, uh, have all to do with, with a sense of preservation and a sense of survival, but not necessarily with the kind of communal life uh, of mutual celebration that we intuit as possible. And that comes from another more imaginative, more artistic mind that lives at the center of a human being. And in my tradition, in the poetic tradition, it's it's called the poetic imagination. We tend to think of the of the imagination as this ability to think up new things. But having mentioned Coleridge, Coleridge and Keats would have said, no, that the ability to think up new things uh, is uh, is the secondary imagination or the fancy, as Coleridge would have called it. Mm. The primary the primary imagination is the ability of an individual or a group of people who are working in an imaginative way to rest into the central tonality of the pattern and that might be an image as in imagination but it also could be a a spoken voice you know it can be a bodily feeling and the understanding is if you get to the center of the pattern all of the qualities at the periphery that previously felt as if they were besieging you and attacking you suddenly align in a constellation of belonging. And this is, you know, this gets quite close to what's called in the tradition, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, enlightenment, but not enlightenment as, uh, as a received platform where you're suddenly immune to the losses of and difficulties that every other human being experience. But really the definition of enlightenment is, a, is it's a real conversation. You're in a real conversation. You're not in an abstract conversation. You'll still feel grief. You'll still feel loss, but you won't feel the distance from it. You will have it fully as your own yeah. and part of your own way forward. You're, you yourself become a conversational part of the conversational nature of reality.
0: Could you say something about how you experience that? I get this sense of, um, a, a really radical shift, you know, out of that superficial or the, the peripheral mind into something much more fundamental, which, um, perhaps as a, as a phenomenological experience is quite different. Um, this, you know, this, uh, this poetic imagination and th- that can then yes. create this sense of alignment. What's, what's that like for you? Like,
1: well, it feels like a kind of take-no-prisoner's experience of reality. It's very very, um, it's very, very grounded, and yet at the same, in the moment, and yet creates this astonishing relationship with all those who have gone before and with the horizon to which you're on your way. I always feel coming to ground in your body, in your life, in your circumstances, in your voice, in your artistry, even if you're just beginning that artistry, coming to ground in all those things strangely creates a real horizon in your life. Uh, When you're walking along the road with your phone in your pocket and it 's knocking on the door of your consciousness as to whether you should respond to something, look up something, or your horizon is is actually you 're very ungrounded, and your horizon is actually abstracted, and your horizon is completely in that tiny screen, um, even if you 're not looking at it, so even just the act of going for a short walk without your phone puts you into a different conversation with reality. Again, I'm not being puritanical about the phones, the mar- the, the smartphones, a marvelous addition to our lives. Um, so long as those lives aren't enslaved to it, which so many people's are these days, just observationally. You know, hmm. The most common body language uh of today's world is of someone hunched over with their hands up close to their face. <laughs> yes, and uh, I was going through a museum in Paris not long ago with body language from every epoch of human history and the one the one form of body language that was not there was that shape was that was someone looking into their palms or into a palm yeah, or speaking into it so uh, we really uh, are in a uh, a quite remarkable time but i do think those screens are magnifying the worst of us you know just as uh, the present president of the United States is magnifying all the shadow. And you could even say the, you know, the potential evil of the masculine psyche unmoored from belonging, uh, totally marinated in narcissism. Yeah, mm. And we're all getting to see what that looks like. Yeah. I have a line from a poem called The Journey, which is sometimes everything has to be, Uh, inscribed across the heavens. Sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens so you can find the one line already written inside you. Sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens so you can find the one line already written inside you. So I do feel we're, we're in a time where our sins are being writ large across the heavens so we can actually crystallize them, see them, and identify them. Every man on the planet gets to see the parallel Trump inside themselves. And the moment when they have actually behaved in, in the same uh, bullying, narcissistic or destabilizing way with uh, institutions, you know, that uh, uh, or with with inheritances, you know, that have been quite precious. So that's just one. Uh, that's just uh, one aspect of uh, of the dynamic that's occurring on the planet right now, and it can be very very stressful. I think for individual human beings, which is why it's so important to have a relationship with silence, yeah? not to be dominated by by one's entrancement with uh, with. Um, um, with uh, unleavened power in the world. You, know? um, you get so many people who, who are against so many things that are happening now who are just obsessed by them as people who are actually propelling what is not good for us at the moment. So the ability to take a holiday, to be away from uh, the bombardment, uh, from the peripheral invitation and to drop down into your artistry, whatever that might be, to even take time in silence to discover what your artistry, artistry might be. And that artistry might not be dance or, or painting or sculpture in the inherited sense. It may be just the way that you, in your own humble fashion, hold the conversation of life, just the way that you keep a, a house which is, which is a palace of hospitality, no matter how small it is for your friends and for anyone who comes along the road to you. you know? yeah. um, uh, we do need to both deepen and broaden our understandings of, uh, of artistry, I think. Yeah. So I always say the first step in, in, uh, in uh, deepening the conversation is stopping the conversation you're having now. We have to do that individually because usually that conversation is at the periphery, but we have to do it societally too, because almost always societally it's at the periphery. Um, Societies, you know, are are much more infantile than any individual that actually makes up that society in total. So it's up to each of us to actually be a parent to our infantile society to be able to Maturity, mature it into its next uh, level of emancipation. You could say, yeah. Uh, but you can't do that without a, a proper relationship with the center, with silence. Yeah. What practice of silence do you have? That that's the beautiful question. That's invited out of out of uh, out of that thought. You know. I and mean, you don't need to be sat on a black cushion facing the wall for hours. You know, in the Zen tradition, although that's wonderful if you can do that, or if you happen to have run into a a, uh, a structure that has taught you how to do that. But you can also have a marvelous relationship with silence. Just going for a walk by yourself, or with your dog. Yeah, uh, just leaving your phone behind. Uh, just sitting with a cup of tea without reading anything or having to look up something, letting the world come and find you. There's a piece I I wrote called everything is waiting for you. And it looks at this very ancient intuition that, uh, that we're constantly naming things too early because we're afraid of the world. And by naming it, we stop it from becoming fully itself because the world is a very frightening place, actually. And human beings can't quite believe what is involved in just even the most everyday life, you know, the amount of loss and disappearance and grief, which is our lot as individual human beings. And so every human being at one time or another turns away from the conversation and turns away from the intimate invitation at the center of a marriage for instance where you're not only trying to get to know the stranger that you're living with but the stranger who you are getting to know through getting to know inside yourself that you are getting to know through getting to know your partner Mm. all of these things are kind of robustly vulnerable invitations and so every human being I think almost has the right to say I'm not going to have that conversation thank you very much you know Mm. I'm going to live at the periphery. I'm going to name things in ways that keep them at a distance. So the only way you can stop that naming is to have a practice of silence whereby the world comes and announces its name to you. And in the Zen tradition, this was embodied by a statement of Dogen Zenji, the great 13th century Zen teacher, when he said, If you go out and confirm the 10,000 things, this is delusion. If you name everything and think you know what you've named, if you go out and confirm the 10,000 things, this is delusion. If the 10,000 things come and confirm you, this is enlightenment. If you go out and confirm the 10,000 things, this is delusion. If the 10,000 things come and confirm you, this is enlightenment. If things are allowed to announce their own names, if your your wife or your intimate partner is allowed to say their name, not the one you've projected on them, yeah. this is enlightenment. Again, it's actually a description of a real conversation, not some abstracted place where you're going to have power over everything and everyone and have the right answer for everything, but just the fact that you're actually here and someone else is here, and it's not a projection. You're actually listening. You're, you've got a watchful heart, as Derek Mahon, the great Irish poet, would say. So I wrote this piece as a kind of reminder to myself of that conversational nature of reality, and it's called Everything is Waiting for You. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny, hidden transgressions. Your great mistake is to act, act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny, hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing, even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything, everything, everything is waiting for you. The, door, the doors are your mentor of things to come. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything, everything, everything is waiting for you. It's interesting to think that everything is waiting for you, not only outside of yourself in the bird song, in the, The color blue, the shades of gray in the sky, the uh, the green that we've co-evolved with for hundreds of millions of years. Um, But that there's actually an inner horizon, an inner landscape which is also speaking to you and inviting you, and that we live our conversational identity is actually stretched between these two poles. There's a great line by the the German-speaking poet Rilke, actually. Uh, He he said, Stretch your well-disciplined strengths between two opposing poles because inside human beings is where God learns. Stretch your well-disciplined strengths between two opposing poles because inside human beings is where God learns. Now, whether you believe in God or not, it's really saying that Whatever is a larger context than you is actually uh, is actually learning about you. Is actually you are actually revealing yourself to the world and enlarging the conversation in ways that you hadn't before. And uh, there's a great Welsh mystic, Henry Vaughan. Uh, he lived in the 1600s and. Uh, He talked about this in Inner Landscape as a deep but dazzling darkness. It's deep because it's foundational. It's dazzling because it's actually hard to get below. To begin with, it just reflects your surface personality. You have to actually go through a kind of undoing, a kind of falling. And we know the experience of falling in love uh, in the outer world with another person, with a landscape, with a city, with a work, uh, but our great theological traditions have un- understood you know, that there's an equal kind of undoing which needs to happen in order to fall in love with yourself. Yeah. And it literally is like dropping, uh, dropping down into the body and being caught by something else, which is always the experience of the lover, actually of undoing your your, uh, your logical faculties so that you can be caught by other powers in the world. And so to think that we live out this astonishing uh, conversation between the invitation of the outer horizon, all the beautiful landscapes in the world that are pilgrim landscapes that are inviting us out, you know, whether you have a religious imagination or not, you know, if you have a great desire to go to Hawaii and it uh, and it occupies a dreamlike reverie in your mind, then that is something that's going to enlarge you if you follow it with sincerity. And it doesn't matter whether you have religious nomenclature for, uh, for it or not. But, so it's interesting to say how would I how would I go on holiday inside myself? how would I how would I go on pilgrimage? inside my own body, uh, in my sense of self, what inner horizon do I need to drop down to, find as foundation and drop through to another landscape and understanding that will hold me in a different way than I ever could have imagined?
0: how do we know when we're doing that you know pa- passing through that
1: that threshold into that new place um just with practice i think yeah. just just in the same way when we first pick up the guitar and every bone in your arm and your wrist and your hand aches and your shoulder too and your right shoulder because you're hunching over too much to look at the fretboard yeah um, and it takes everything just for you to get a single unbuzzing note from a string <laughs> with your finger against the fret. Yeah. Uh, and then slowly, as, uh, as we practice more and more, you start to be able to not only get clear notes, but actually put notes together that have a conversation. And then to find that actually you can have a representation of, of your own way of being through the way you play a tune that may have been played by others hundreds of thousands of times, but no one has actually played it the way you are playing it. now. You start to drop between the spaces in the notes. And suddenly, suddenly when you reach a certain kind of mastery, you're not playing a guitar anymore. You're, you're somewhere you're you're somewhere in the conversational frontier between you and your own listening ear and other listening ears too if you listen to martin hayes one of the greatest exponents of the of the irish fiddle it's not it's not long it's not but a few minutes before you forget you're listening to irish music at all it's just music because it's it's transcendent of its of its tradition and it's transcendent because he has so much space and opening between all the notes and because it's it, he's made it into a single into his own voice and uh, that just happens to have an irish accent you might say <laughs> but yeah. he's speaking he's speaking in truths that uh, we can all uh, and tropes that we can all recognize because uh, i love this because on the one hand, it's
0: like I get a sense of you know the phases of life. You know, of you know this audience is primarily coaches, and so we can recognize in ourselves and the people we work with that there's these times when a conversation we're in in life has run its course, and then you know uh, we we need to stop that conversation and, and and cultivate that relationship with silence that you're talking about, but then. There's something here in what you're speaking about, which for me seems to be <clears throat> something we're being invited into the, in, in these times, which is learning to be, you know, to be, in, to, to be played in that way that you speak of with this musician, you know, where, where he's accessing this, this kind of something wholly different. He's not just playing yeah. an instrument or the music, but there's something alive and being expressed through him that that touches people in a fundamentally different way, that seems really connected to that poetic imagination yes. that you talked about, an expression of that.
1: We all hold that conversation in our own way. We all enter the tradition in a different way. Um, I was sat at dinner with Van Morrison uh, not very long ago, and he's a representation of someone who moves forward by a complete disowning of his past, you know, he doesn't, he really has no time in the conversation for all of his his past triumphs in his songs. And he really feels as if they were almost written by someone else who's now no longer here and therefore irrelevant to him. So it's quite, uh, it's, uh, which is quite disturbing for people who love his, you know, brown eyed girl and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and days like this and all of his great. But he did turn to me and he said, don't you experience that? And I said, no, I I experience exactly the opposite, which is this radical owning of everything I've written. And I'm always surprised by how right I was in my early days, you know, about when I didn't know that I knew. Uh, I'm always surprised by what I understood in my early writing when I was feeling my way and and chancing my arm, you know. Um, And... Um, But that's Van's way, and he couldn't be an artist in any other way. And though at the dinner table people were trying to persuade him that he really should love his earlier work, uh, that uh, is not Van's way of being courageous in his art. So there's not only the art that we practice, but there's the way that I practice that art, and that's going to be different than anyone else. I need to fully own the unique way of, that I not only speak, but of what I speak of, but the way I speak and where it comes from. And not feel competition uh, or comparison in a place where there is no comparison. You know, when you're at the, when you're at the call face of a poem writing it, there are, there is no competition with other poets it's absurd to think of that there's only competition where if you retreat from that edge into your peripheral mind your peripheral strategic mind that has named you as a poet amongst other poets and where do you stand with them well i think you know one of the, probably one of the radically artistic undoings that has to take place in coaching is for you to let go of the name you've given yourself as coach. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so that in the heart of the alchemical exchange, uh, you allow for a certain kind of unstructured wildness which comes from what you recognize as your artistry, actually. Which does not follow rules, yeah. For some artists, you you own your past and everything you've written, right to the beginning. That's my way. For a Van Morrison, you disown everything you've done, <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and you you live completely and utterly in the present because that's the way you're made. Here, yeah.
0: could I share a, a, a very quick
1: experience yeah. that I mm. think speaks to? I,
0: I I love what you're saying, and. Um, yes. So I was with a potential client and we were just, I I love to dive in with them and and say like, well, let's find out if we can work together, you know? Um, And um, in that conversation, there was a point where everything changed. And that was the point where I said, you know what? I'm going to throw away right now my identity as a coach because it felt too small. I, you know, I'd been playing, and, I, and I, I try to throw away my identity as a coach often. But in this conversation, I've been playing that role. And as yes. soon as I threw it away, we dropped, you know, and, and I, my eyes were shining, you know, and I was like, yes. I, I was, I was uh, um, almost on the edge of tears, you know, yes. and, um, and she was too, you know, something was evoked inside of her and, um, and it was an incredible conversation. And the one that we'd never, I think, what well, she said she'd never had before. You know, she, she's a woman who'd done a lot of developmental work. And yes. the old conversation we're in just felt stale. And that was the point yeah. where I was like, this, what's happening? So
1: There's yeah. a lovely encapsulation of what you just described in uh, Patrick Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh poem. It's a poem called The Self-Slaved. But the, uh, the powerful lines are, me, I will throw away. Me sufficient to the day, the sticky self that clings adhesions on the wings to love and adventure. Me, I will throw away. Me sufficient to the day, the sticky self that clings adhesions on the wings to love and adventure. To go on the grand tour, a man must be free from self-necessity. To go on the grand tour, a woman must be free from self-necessity. I'm sure he would write, too, if he was writing today. Me, I will throw away. Me, sufficient to the day. The sticky self that clings adhesions on the wings to love and adventure. To go on the grand tour, a man must be free from self-necessity. It's uh, in Kavanaugh's mind, uh, just to be sufficient to the day is a tragedy, just to get through your to-do list sir. Um, The great tragedy of the to-do list is it was put together by the person you were yesterday. (laughs) uh, So yes, there's a structure, but uh, just an indication as to what really needs to happen in a day. To drop down below the besieging periphery to another horizon, yeah. Perhaps I could just finish uh, with a piece I realize we're coming towards uh, towards the uh, the end of our exchange here, Joel. Yeah, sure. And uh, this is a piece <coughs> called uh, um, The Bell and the Blackbird from a recent book of that name. Uh, it's also in my uh, compendium, David White Essentials. But it takes this image, which is very powerful in the Irish tradition, I, uh, this image that is very... Powerful in the Irish tradition of a of a monk standing on the edge of the of the monastic precinct in the early uh, Christian days of the Irish Church, you know, eighth, ninth, uh, well, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth century in Ireland. Very powerful, very unique form of Christianity. Uh, no conception of original sin, and a really, really powerful relationship with the natural world. And the monk is standing on the frontier, you could say, between the human conception of holiness and, and, and the natural creation's uh, manifestation of it. Because he's standing at the edge of the monastic wall and he hears the bell calling him to prayer. And in the story, he says to himself, that's the most beautiful sound in the world, which is the call to silence, to another context that is not your own, to a deeper foundation inside yourself. But at the same time, he hears the call of the blackbird from beyond the wall, out in the fields and the woods, untrammeled by human understanding. And in the same instant, he says, and that is also the most beautiful sound in the world. And he stands there not knowing which way to go, actually. And uh, it's kind of, it's a kind of Zen koan in the Irish tradition because that's the story, really. And uh, it's the story because none of us as human beings get to choose between the deeper context inside ourselves, between having to become a better person through prayer, through meditation through silence. Yeah. But none of us get to refuse the created world in the calls that it makes on us you know, through the call of the blackbird, the, the world that, that reaches us and finds us just as we are with no improvement at all. Yeah. And that we live out this incredible conversation between having to get ready, having to become better coaches, become better conversationalists, become better human beings, and just having to listen with your whole body for what is finding you and how you're found in this moment. Yeah. And that could be right at the very heart, art, the very heart and the very art of coaching itself. Yeah. So, this is called The Bell and the Blackbird. I, I wrote this poem at this very desk, actually, when uh, I was in a very deep state of concentration. And, uh, and my wife sounded a meditation bell somewhere behind me. And the bell went right through me just because I was in this deep state of silence. And in the very same moment, the red-winged blackbird here in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, which is always the harbinger of spring, suddenly let out this beautiful song oh. from the garden through, through the open French door of my study. And I heard them. I heard these two sounds in a way I'd never heard them before through the abstract of the story. So I, I I I wrote this piece almost in one go. From well, actually, I did write it completely in one go. From that experience, I echoed this story that I'd known for years and years and years. So this is the bell and the blackbird, the art and the heart of coaching, perhaps, the sound. Of a bell still reverberating, the sound of a bell still reverberating, or a blackbird, a blackbird calling from a corner of the field, asking you to wake into this life, or inviting you deeper into the one that waits. The sound of a bell still reverberating, or a blackbird, a blackbird calling from a corner of the field, asking you to wake into this life or inviting you deeper into the one that waits. Either way takes courage. Either way wants you to become nothing but that self that is no self at all. Wants you to walk to the place where you find you already know you will have to give every last thing away. The approach that is also the meeting itself without any meeting at all that radiance you have always carried with you as you walk both alone and completely accompanied in friendship by every corner of creation crying hallelujah. Either way takes courage. Either way wants you to become nothing but that self that is no self at all. Wants you to walk to the place where you find you actually already know you'll have to give every last thing away. The approach that is also the meeting itself without any meeting at all. That radiance you have always carried with you as you walk both alone and completely accompanied in friendship by every corner of creation crying hallelujah.
0: So there we have it. If you have enjoyed the podcast today, I would be grateful if you would share it. I'd love to have as many people enjoy it and benefit from it as possible. And if you are not on our mailing list, I would invite you to sign up. You can find it on our homepage, coachesrising.com. If you scroll down, you'll see a sign-up box somewhere. And yeah, I guess the invitation is, what's the conversation you're being invited to stop? And if you listen, if you stop, if you Embrace the unknown. What's the courageous conversation that's wanting to emerge? Who are you being called to be? Be well, stay safe, and see you next time.